Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist and a licensed nutritionist and a former competitive bodybuilder. On rare occasion in the summer, I actually get called into uh, work on a weekend, and that happened this time. So, you're going to get three separate installments like we did not that long ago. I'm going to offer three studies, and then we'll just go over to Phil and then to Mike, uh, like we did before, so you have some information and motivation as you continue with your training. So let's see what we have here. This first one, let's see. Strength and Muscle Sport News. This is Journal of Strength Conditioning Research from June, so it just happened. And I want you to think about yourself in this regard, and would you agree with this? I'm guessing you probably would. I sure would. The title here is Effects of Preferred versus Non-Preferred Music on Resistance Exercise Performance. So this is Ballman, B-A-L-L-M-A-N-N, and colleagues. Let's check this out. Uh, The purpose of this study was to examine the effects of listening Uh, to preferred versus non-preferred music on resistance exercise performance. And I found this interesting because they did a lot of the same kinds of things I've done with caffeine. In fact, it'd be fun to compare the magnitude of the effect size of uh, music versus coffee, right? Like which one is quote-unquote better. But they specifically looked at resistance athletes, whereas a lot of the existing literature is about runners and cyclists listening to music. So they took 12 resistance-trained college-age men, They were 97 kilograms on average, plus or minus 18. So they're not small. Um, So they recruited them. They either listened to preferred or non-preferred music during a bench press exercise test. Uh, The subjects completed as many reps as possible with 75% of their one rep max. So, you know, medium to moderately heavy. Uh, And power and velocity of the barbell movement was measured for the first three reps using a linear position transducer. And that's what I use too. Typically, we use the ballistic measurement system where you just put a tether on the end of the bar and it's sort of like a tendo unit, but it gives you a lot more information. Uh, And what information did they get? Well, listening to preferred music increased overall bench press repetitions uh, that they completed. Uh, uh, Also increased overall bench press mean velocity, relative mean power, peak velocity, and peak power. 
All these things were higher when listening to preferred versus non-preferred music. So they go on to conclude athletes may benefit from the option of listening to their preferred music. Now, this may get into the category that Phil would say of, you know, duh, science, like, wow, thanks for that sort of thing. We already know that. But there is some back and forth in the literature about preferred music versus like tempo, like upbeat tempo being necessary and that kind of thing. I suppose ideally you could do both, you know, get the best of both worlds. So think about your best music. Uh, I would literally wait and, you know, if I'm going to do a heavy squat for me, I wait and put on my favorite song in my playlist right before go time. So this suggests that, yeah, you're going to be more powerful. Uh, again, speed strength, if you will, when I say powerful. Um, and maybe get in a couple more reps just because you dig the music. Let's see what else came across my desk. Here are two from the International Journal of Obesity. Um, a, quite a different flavor than that first one. But again, we're trying to get both aspects of sports nutrition, right? There's a sports aspect and a nutrition aspect. This one is entitled Sex-Specific Genetic Architecture in Response to American and Ketogenic Diets. So what caught my eye was they're going to look at men versus women and how we respond to a typical diet versus a very low-carb ketogenic diet. This is from Anna Salvador and colleagues. Um, You know, March of this year, so fairly new, It says there's a growing appreciation for individual responses to diet. In a previous study, mouse strain-specific responses to American and ketogenic diets were observed. So again, they're looking at mice here. In this study, we searched for genetic variants underlying these differences. Now, let me read a little bit from the introduction to this paper before I get to the results and conclusion. Efforts to provide individualized dietary recommendations based on genetic markers have been underway for several years. I think a lot of you guys know that. There are companies like 23andMe and that sort of thing. However, these efforts have largely detected alleles with small effect sizes that aren't clinically actionable. So in other words, there's no one specific location in your genetic material that's going to have a gigantic impact by itself. Uh, responses to diet are likely not due to the action of a single allele uh, with a large effect, but rather the sum of multiple small effect alleles, epigenetic modifications, right? So the control system that lies upon your genes and turns them on or off, and sex. So again, gender differences. I suppose when I first saw this, I thought, I wonder if women do ketogenic diets better, quote unquote, than men, you know, by some uh, biological marker. What did they find here? Um, Causal network inference suggests that HDL cholesterol, so good cholesterol, and fat mass gain are both linked. It's to the FMGQ1, to a specific location of a gene. Um, And what they're trying to do is link this specific gene, of course, to a phenotypical or physical observable manifestation. So they were connecting um, HDL cholesterol and fat mass gain to a pretty specific location in the genetic material. What did they conclude then? Strong sex effects were identified at both FMGQ2 and LMGQ1, uh, which are also diet-dependent. So again, sex differences in these areas of your genetic material that are diet-dependent. Interestingly, um, they affect fat gain directly, 
while others uh, influence fat gain not just directly but also through intermediate changes in your serum cholesterol. Like again, those HDL numbers. So pretty chewy paper here, actually, a lot of genetic stuff. If we have geneticists that listen, you know, by all means, chime in. But it's interesting that there do seem to be sex-specific gene location or activity um, responses to different types of diets. So when you hear something about do ketogenic diets work or not, this tells me that... uh, you know, your family history, your genetics, but also your sex may have an impact on how well you respond to uh, different diets. And one more before I hand things over to Phil. Again, International Journal of Obesity. This is Hernandez and colleagues. Omega-3 PUFA supplementation, right? So essentially fish oils, ameliorates adipose tissue inflammation and insulin-stimulated glucose disposal in subjects with obesity. Uh, and this has a potential role for APOE. I'll get to that. So uh, again, for March of this year, the background says long chain omega-3 fats, right? The omega-3 like EPA and DHA from fish oils. In animal models of diet-induced obesity has consistently shown improved insulin sensitivity. And that's very interesting to me as a late middle-aged guy insulin sensitivity or your carb handling, if you will, that tends to fall. So, uh, but it says the same is not always reported in human studies. So they're um, digging deeper. 13 subjects with a very high body mass index. These guys are 39.3 on average. So far above the obese threshold of 30. They underwent a euglycemic hyperinsulinemic clamp Uh, with subcutaneous fat biopsies before and three months after they got a a pretty nice dose here, four grams daily of DHA and EPA supplements. Results, um, the saturated fats in their plasma, palmitic and stearic acid plasma levels, they went down from the omega-3 supplementation. So that could be a good thing. Gene expression of pro-inflammatory markers and adipokines were improved after omega-3 fat supplementation. So also nice there. Systemic inflammation was decreased after omega-3 PUFA supplementation as shown by cytokine assessments. And it says all in all, these changes were associated with a 25% increase in insulin-stimulated glucose disposal. So again, better carb handling, if you will. Uh, despite no change in body weight. So it's not like they lost a ton of body weight. It just made them less inflamed um, and better carb handling. Quite interesting, I think. And then they say apolipoprotein E, or APOE, being one of the most upregulated genes that they observed, again, from that biopsy. So conclusion, high-dose, long-chain omega-3 PUFA, right, polyunsaturated fatty acids, PUFA, modulates significant changes in plasma fatty acid profile, adipose tissue, and systemic inflammation. These findings are associated with significant improvements in insulin-stimulated glucose disposal. We speculate that omega-3 PUFA increases macrophage-derived APOE messenger RNA levels, uh, you know, that leads to anti-inflammatory properties. So more information here about how fish oils can help with inflammation, and I thought, interestingly here, maybe also helping your carb metabolism. All right, I am done, and I'm going to turn things over to uh, Phil and then Mike. Hello, everybody. This is Phil Stevens, 
powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, owner of Strength Guild, strength coach, and all that. A um, couple things. You know, we're, we're recording separate again today, so I'm giving you my piece. I'll, I'm going to hit on a couple topics. And first off, I'd like to say happy birthday to my son, Odin. He turned six today. Happy birthday, buddy. Um, what I'm going to hit you with here, uh, I got two main topics I'm going to hit on real quick. We're going out of town to celebrate my son's birthday, so hitting you up here. But first off, uh, Max Kieran Whiting gave me potentially one of my hardest questions I've ever had. What is your favorite sandwich meats? Oh, man, that's tough. Um, I don't know, man. We've been eating. I, I, I smoked a bunch of brisket and chicken, and we made sandwiches with those. It's amazing. Um, a Reuben is hard to beat, though, so corned beef. Oh, that's so good. Um, it, it's hard to pick one, but if I had to say maybe, maybe corned beef, it's got to be good, though. Um, so that's where I'd go with that, Max. Uh, but after that, I don't know, man, you can't beat some good, uh, smoked brisket or, uh, chicken. So I'm a fan of all the meats really. So meat on the sandwich is, uh, an amazing thing. The Earl of sandwich, I think is who created the sandwich and he should, he should be a Nobel prize winner. So two things I'm going to hit you up with now. I'm going to hit on training for travel. And then also just hit you up with a training update of my own, what I'm doing. So, uh, and I figured that might be interesting to everybody. First off, training for travel. I get this question all the time. I was just talking to a client the other day. Um, cause what I'll do with my clients is my in-house clients. So in-person clients, if they, uh, if they have extended work travel and things like that, uh, they get programming to take along with them if they want it. So this is touchy. Um, now if your if your work involves a lot of travel, then I say, okay, yes, we need to do, uh, some training for travel because it's part of your daily life. Let's say you travel every week or every other week, something like that. Uh, that's enough to warrant that. Okay. We're going to have to find ways to train while we try out travel if we want to make great progress. Uh, and I'm lucky enough that now I'm in a place where pretty much I only deal with athletes, um, people that are competing in something for the most part, um, be it a, a strength sport or a sport like any where strength training can benefit it. But So very driven people and uh, people that have progress for, for something tangible like a sport. So um, it's very important that we keep them strong and make them stronger. So if, if, if travel's a part of your daily life, then yes, we need to find a workaround. I need to you or your coach needs to program for it now in a different situation let's say like mine this weekend um, or even last week i had to travel for three days to on a business meeting out to california and uh generally what i have people do if you're a hard training person and you don't travel often like me i don't know we'll take two to three little short vacations a year um i just don't train uh if you're training hard the rest of the year, let's say three weeks you go on vacation a year, fucking take some time off. It's probably going to do nothing but help. Um, and if you're anything like me on vacations, you're you're fairly active anyways. Like our last vacation we went to for a week in the uh, Smoky Mountains up on the Appalachian Trail. So what we ended up doing, we ended up hiking and crap all, all weekend or all week. 
So I was I was active anyway, so there's no need for me to to go train. And it's good to take some time off and you'll feel less beat up. I came back from that and felt great. Uh I think more people that are that are that train hard probably could benefit from that time off. Just fucking detach and let your body heal and be active in other ways. Um you know, go to the beach, play some volleyball, play around in the surf, whatever. Um, go hiking, biking, you know, just have fun and take your vacation as what it is, a vacation from everything, including lifting. And it's okay. You're not going to go backwards. If anything, you might go forwards. Um, I'm going to take a drink of my coffee real quick. Um, but now, like I said, if it's part of your job, now we need to make some adjustments if you want to make some progress. If you're traveling every other week or something. We're going to have to make adjustments even if it's body weight. Um, just something to keep you going in the right direction if you're traveling that much. But if it's a few times a year, week here, week there, my suggestion to almost everybody is detach, man. People stress about this stuff too much. Oh, man, I'm going on a week vacation. I'm going to lose all my gains. No, you're not. Um, like I said, you're probably going to be better. Now, um, that's pretty much all I have to say on that. And Let's go into what am I doing now? What is Phil doing now? If anybody's followed me, I try to post up. I'm going to get better at the forum again. Sorry, it's just been crazy. And I need to just make it habit. But come August, I will start training for my next meet. I'm doing a meet in Columbus, Ohio. Got some buddies come with me. My training partner, Austin. Uh, Casey, that lives at our gym. My buddy, Brian Haley, he lives in Ohio. He's coming. Maybe we'll get... Uh, Lonnie to, to roll down and be in support. I'm going to try and drag Wendler out of his cave. So to come curse at me. But so come August, I'll be training for a meet again in Columbus. And anyways, what I've been doing. So when I got my hip replacement, that's been, it'll be just over six years ago. Cause it was right before my son's birth. And, uh, so it's been six years since hip replacement about, five years since hamstring detachment so let's say five years since major surgery and 100 percent what i concentrated on after that hip once the hip was in a good place i have 100 percent been concentrated on getting my squat up which i've done uh i've squatted 722 raw to meat after hip replacement so that was 100 because for so long my squat was just horrendous uh, because of my hip. So I just, I did what I could and I was in the sixes, but low sixes, but, uh, th that needed work because I was pulling near 800. So let's say it was my, my squat was almost 200 pounds behind. So for, for years now, it, the, the concentration has been highly on the squat. And what I figured out is in my own training after my hip replacement and a lot, some of this has to do with age too. But uh, now that I'm in my mid forties, I, I tried to go back to what I did before, which was four days a week training where I'd have one day heavily concentrated on squat, one day heavily concentrated on deadlift, uh, one day on press, one day on bench, not in that order. It might be like squat, bench, deadlift, press. But, uh, what I found is I, I can push as hard as I could before or harder, but I can't do it as often. So when I went back to those two days, basically I had to have a squat day and, I wasn't recovered, uh, come, come deadlift day a few days later. So I was just in pain and I'd try and push that again up to my level that I like to train at. And basically what ended up happening is all my days were shit 
because I was always in some kind of, I was aching, uh, not really pain, but I've, I've know this about myself. It's like, I've tried frequency training. I've tried all this crap and it's not me. I'm not that way. So I'm a, I want to train. I want to train hard. So what I found out is if I, if I come in and I started doing all my squats and deadlifts on one day, so it's a big Saturday and we'll squat first and then we'll deadlift. So what we were doing for the longest time is lots of hard squats. And then deadlift was kind of an afterthought and we just kind of, oh, okay, let's do this today. And we went for something hard, but I mean, we were tapped. I mean, so I might go to like a, a hard triple pause squat and then we do some AMRAPs after and then all those warm ups. So you come to deadlift and you're packing all this in about two hours. You're zapped, man. So I, of course we deadlift and we pushed it hard, but I mean, how hard can you push when you're wore out? So what I've decided to do is we're changing it up for a bit. So we're still squatting a bit, but it's just not near as much. The volume's dropping drastically and we're not going as heavy. Um, like last week I felt good. So I took 585 for a double. But that was smooth and crisp, and that's where I called it. Had a lot left in the tank, and now the concentration is going on deadlift. And uh, so last weekend, we're doing deadlifts, pause at the knee. So you lift it up, you stop just below the knee for a two-second pause, then finish the pull. Um, what would I do? A triple at 585. And then we're dropping down after that and doing a bunch of uh, a volume. So I did like 415 for 15 or something like that. A set of 15 and really trying to it's time for me somebody who's uh always been good at deadlift i'm starting to get to the point where it's like oh shit my squat's there or higher than my deadlift so it's time to give some time back to that because it has dropped off i mean i haven't not deadlifted 700 in a meet but uh my last meet i think i hit 727 or something like that and it was fucking hard so and that used to be an opener so we're taking some time and going to really build that up at least until August. Um, it might run all the way through the meet. Um, as long as my squat stays up where it's supposed to be. And uh, just push the uh, push the deadlift more. Put more energy towards it for a while. And it's already even after week two. Like week one kicked my ass. Um, I'm not used to volume like that on deadlift. And I will say that anything heavy on deadlift, we rarely go above threes. Uh, but volume work, I like, I like volume work at a lighter weight. So hitting those sets of 10 and 15 and things like that. Um, there was one point in time I did like 365 or 36 reps or something like that on stiff legged deadlifts. I'm a big proponent of stiff legged deadlifts and getting volume in. And, uh, on the volume work, we'll go touch and go. Um, right now we're going from a small deficit to kind of equate for that touch and go on my heavy competition type lifts. I always have myself and I try to get other people to pause, pause at the bottom. So it's like a, a triple will be three singles where there's a short pause in the bottom, reset, go. Um, cause what I've found is it just, it makes you stronger over time. It's a lot fucking harder. I mean, go pull a triple, put 80% on the bar, pull a triple touch and go. Now put 80% on the bar, pull a triple where you pause each one and you'll instantly know the difference and it sucks. And I, I mean, that's a lot of the reason why people uh, do touch and go uh, because pausing them, it's, it's fucking hard. So, and my thing is, is I, I really like making training harder than competition, uh, make training hard. So then competition day, it's easy. And that, that was another reason for me going to 
my squat and deadlift on the same day. Now I go to a meet. It used to be I go to a meet and it's a long day. You know, you squat, then you have a break, then you bench, you have a break, and then you have a deadlift and have a break. But all through training, basically, we'd been doing, okay, it's squat day. So you do your squats. Maybe you do some good mornings or some lunges or something like that. You do all your assistance work. So we get a lot of training in, but you're never used to heavy squat followed by heavy deadlift later. And now I go to a meet ever since I started this, and it's like, no big deal. Normally, I'm like heavy squatting, and then 15 minutes later, after the heavy squats are over, okay, we're pulling heavy. Now I get like a five-hour break in between. So a meet is actually easier than training in some ways. So that's another another reason why we went that route. And I'm throwing in a, a another day there that is like assistance work. So I'll do super light squats. We're talking like 25%. And maybe some leg extensions and some leg uh, leg press and things like that. But that day, is it's very much more focused on recovery than it is actually strength training. It's it, the light, the loads are light and the reps are a lot higher uh, just to get some, some, some volume in. But that's kind of where we're at. And like I said, once we're, uh, once we hit August, August hits and I'm really planning on, I haven't taken, I've done meets and I take them serious, but I haven't. I haven't pushed a meat like I used to in a while. So that's kind of my plan here. I'm not eating up again. If anybody follows me, I ate up two years ago for that last record breakers, the last one Jesse Burdick's ever going to throw. And I made it to about 289. And um, for the first time in my life, my blood work came back bad. I was like a cheeseburger away from cardiac arrest. And I think a lot of that just has to do with age because nothing else changed for that meat as far as how I prepare for it. And uh, for the first time in my life, my blood pressure was up, my cholesterol was up, and things like that. And uh, it's time for me to not do that. I mean, in my 20s and 30s, I could eat and do whatever I wanted and train my ass off. And my blood pressure was always fine. And uh, cholesterol was always in check. This one, it took me a little bit to get it back. And so I'm just, I'm eating comfortably. Staying around 250, I think I walked in at like 254 at the last meet and lifted at 275. Could I have cut to 242? Yeah, but why? Um, I'm comfortable where I am. And unless I'm going for a new all-time world record, then I just don't believe in cuts. So, you know, will I cut down to 242 at some point? Yeah, maybe. Um, but we'll eat up. We'll eat regular to the meet. No, like, pushing it up. See where I'm at about a month out. If I'm sitting like 244, hey, let's just go 242. I can easily make that. If I'm in the 250s, we're just going light 275. So, but I'll push bench. Uh, we'll see. I'm finally, uh, so I tore my labrum years ago. It's going on 10 years ago at one of Mark Bell's backyard meets. And there was three laudable out, audible loud pops in that shoulder. And, I haven't repaired it. Uh, I can still do things. So I'm under the, I'm not going to go under the knife so I can bench 450. Uh, I can still do daily life fine. Benching kind of sucks. Um, my goal at every meet since then is just a few weeks out. I make sure I can still open at 315. As long as I can do that, I'm not totally embarrassing myself. And, but I've been back past 405 twice since that. And, uh, both times how I did it was push-ups on rings 
And so I'm trying to get myself, it's like, come on, stupid, you know how to do this. Uh, benching with a bar hurts. So I'm trying to train up until about a month, month and a half out with nothing but ring push-ups. And what we end up doing is, right now I'm just doing a ton of volume, like 100 reps. But uh, what we end up doing is I have people stack plates on my back. So, you know, we'll even have 100-pound plates on my back and just doing reps with that. And for some reason, the uh, when I'm not locked into a position... It doesn't hurt my shoulder. So we'll see. You know, hopefully I can uh, put up a decent bench. I'll never be the best bencher in the world, and I'm not willing to go under surgery. I've seen too many shoulder repairs go bad and like, okay, well, now I can't squat. So I can squat. I can deadlift. I can bench. I just can't do it that heavy. So I'm not going to go under the knife to potentially ruin something and spend a shitload of money just to, just to, to maybe bench heavy. So... That's where I'm at, guys. Um, again, happy birthday to my son. What's up, Lonnie and Mike? What's up, everybody at the Iron, the Iron Radio listeners? Hope you're having a good time. If you have any questions, please never hesitate to drop me a line. You can go to the forum. You can go on my Facebook page. You can go on the Instagram. Um, I'm, I try to always be available. So fire questions away. I'll get them answered on here. I hope everybody has a good weekend. Bye. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. Over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Okay, listeners, after more than a decade of joining us on the podcast airwaves, you can now also become viewers on YouTube. This is not our usual simple backup of the audio show, but rather a growing body of video taste tests covering various foods of interest to nutrition enthusiasts, bodybuilders, and powerlifters. From within YouTube, simply search for Iron Radio Taste Test or Nutrition Radio Taste Test, in about 15 minutes, we cover taste and texture similar to other products, uh, usefulness to the co-hosts, and whether we would recommend the product to certain clients. You may even want to watch our podcast feed or Facebook group for which products are coming down the pike so you can taste test them with us. Join us for this new monthly project. fix of iron radio in addition to being a popular institute on itunes we are also on email simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email you'll get a once per week email no more 
That's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. And today, if you are super nerdy into nutrition, supplements, and even some exercise, a little bit of health, and especially performance and body comp, I have a treat for you. As I was at the International Society of Sports Nutrition Conference uh, just recently, June 10th through the 12th in St. Petersburg, Florida, and I'm going to do a breakdown of many of the talks I think that you will find interesting. I won't be able to get to all of them, and yeah, I think it'll be a good time, especially if you want the most cutting-edge information. A lot of what was presented uh, hasn't even been officially uh, published in any literature yet. That's the beauty of going to in-person conferences, which are going again now, which is awesome, is that you can get some brand new data that hasn't really seen the light of day with the exception of a presentation at a conference. So as I mentioned, this will be a recap of the ISSN meeting, and it was amazing. It was super fun. It was great. I went down with uh, Dr. Lonnie Lowry and some of his students. I helped them a little bit with a poster. Uh, the students did really good. Uh, all the credit really goes uh, to them for the work that they put in. Did a great job, once again, mentoring undergrad students on how to do research. It's very common and a part of a master's program in most disciplines that you will need to publish your own research. Obviously, if you're doing a PhD, that's the whole point of the degree is how to publish and conduct uh, studies. Um, but at an undergrad level, it's actually very rare. It's even more rare to have students uh, publish something alongside uh, master's, PhD, and even uh, PhDs at the same time. So we helped them do a study on caffeine and coffee related to heart rate uh, variability, uh, which was awesome. The short kind of uh, oversimplified takeaway is that uh, Starbucks Via packets, which is our more standardized for caffeine content, um, actually results in a little bit more parasympathetic tone as measured by heart rate variability. So parasympathetic tone is a little bit more rest and relaxation. So shout out to the students who did a great job on that. So if we dive into some of the meeting here, the official notes are not yet quite up uh, for members of the ISSN. In the future, they will have them on the ISSN website, so you'll be able to see everything. But I wanted to get this podcast out to you as soon as possible so you have all the latest and greatest data. So this is from my personal notes. I tried to get as many details as I could, but uh, due to the interest of time and just my ability to write everything down, it's going to be partial. So if you do have questions, you can send a note to me. I'll do my best to track them down and get an answer on to you, but I won't be able to have every single detail for the studies. Even if I did, that would probably be incredibly boring to listen to. So I want to get to you the highlights. And if you have questions, 
I will do whatever I can to get you the information. And also as a shameless plug, I am a member of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. I did uh, the CISSN uh, certification through them. They have the 19th annual conference will be at the expo in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, June 16th through the 18th, 2022. So if you enjoy uh, sports science, I would highly recommend that you check it out. So a huge thank you uh, to all the members of the ISSN this year uh, for all the work uh, that they did. Really appreciate it. Uh, shout out to uh, Eric Bustiello, who always does a great job running around making sure everything is on track. Uh, Dr. Chad Kirksey was helpful with the organization of the conference and the speakers, and then also the current president, uh, Dr. Tricia uh, Van Dusseldorp, for all of her work putting it together. It's a massive undertaking trying to herd that many cats to get it together. So huge thanks to them and Dr. Jose Antonio, everyone at the ISSN, all the board members for making this possible. So the meeting started off on a Thursday, and unfortunately, I was not able to get there until a little bit later. I had the launch of the physiologic flexibility cert going on. I had some client stuff and some other deadlines for projects. I got down to Florida on Wednesday night and literally just went to bed <laughs> not too far along after I got there and then got up super early at 5.15 in the morning, did my little morning routine meditation and was working to try to get as much stuff done as I could before the conference. I did take a break to go to exercise at the Lifetime Fitness uh, down there in Tampa, which was awesome. And then I uh, was stuck at the Chipotle near the conference trying to get some last minute stuff done. So unfortunately, due to that, I did miss a few of the uh, presentations uh, that started it off on Thursday. Uh, Eric did one on registered dietitians. Uh, top pieces of advice for RDs and sports nutritionists, which I heard was great. Uh, there was a talk on nutrient timing, which goes beyond just looking at mac macros uh, by Patrick Hardy. Andrew Yegman did a presentation on energy status of collegiate athletes, and the literature on that usually shows that a lot of college uh, athletes are way um, under-eating. And then Dr. Guillermo Escalante did a great talk on the diet refeeds and diet breaks. I did get to chat with him a fair amount um, at one of the president's dinners on Saturday night, uh, or it was Friday night, all the days run together. Uh, Friday night that I was invited to with Dr. Lonnie Lowry and about uh, 12 other people. Uh, great guy. I'm going to try to get him on the podcast. Uh, he will be on Iron Radio coming up here uh, to talk about... Um, kind of the life of a professional bodybuilder is kind of what we're looking at right now. Um, but great information on that. I did get to talk to him about it. The short takeaway is the research right now is a pretty darn split. Um, if I were to hedge a bet, I would say that diet breaks may not be as physiologically impactful as what we once believed. Um, but I do think there is a role for them, even if it's more on the psychology side. Again, this is based on very limited uh, data, um, but hopefully we'll have more on that in the future. 
Uh, we do have a little bit in here coming up, a uh, talk that Dr. Bill Campbell gave, uh, so stay tuned for more information on that. Uh, Dr. Ralph Yeager gave a great talk on gut health, how are athletes different, and what role can probiotics play in performance and recovery. Unfortunately, I got there just towards the tail end, uh, but I did get a chance to uh, talk to Ralph, who always has uh, really just super great information. I've known him through the ISSN for man, probably over like a decade now. And one of the things he presented was perhaps we can look at probiotics in terms of increasing the amount of uh, digested proteins. If we could give maybe a probiotic that increases uh, maybe essential amino acid availability, uh, that might be more anabolic for athletes. And it does look like there may be some data hint hint in that area. Uh, the data was very preliminary, but super interesting. Uh, we don't know, uh, does that translate into longer-term effects? Um, but if it does, then maybe you will start seeing probiotics in all sorts of protein supplements. If I were to hazard another guess, that would be my guess going forward. Uh, very interesting talk uh, by Dr. Omar uh, Ekdar. Uh, hopefully I pronounced your name correctly there. Uh, viewing sports performance through the lens of evolutionary biology, winner and loser effects, and why runners get high. This was very interesting. Uh, he gave a similar talk at the Neurosports Conference. Uh, the takeaway from this is that there is a short-term effect in different animals, and it looks like possibly in humans, too, on the winner effect. So they, they've done studies on, I think it was uh, fighting fish and even uh, fighting insects. And if the insect, they have like these little battles that they have them do, had lost and goes into another fight, it appears that the competitor goes after them right away. And if the, the insect or the little creature had won more, they seem to be a little bit more uh, tentative, which I thought was super interesting. Now, how they can figure that out or how do they know? Are they looking at some body posture or position? I have no idea, um, but very interesting. So he was looking at some uh, related information in professional athletes. They didn't really see a huge effect, but again, these are professional athletes. So you would imagine that part of your job as a professional athlete is to make sure you can sort of buffer against that effect. They did some studies looking at uh, double headers in college baseball. Um, and if I remember right and my notes are correct, it looks like there may be an effect um, there, but the effect was also very short term. Uh, did not appear to last into the next day. So super interesting stuff. So look for more um, probably in the lay media It'll be probably overblown about the winner effect. So the next day, uh, we kicked it off with Dr. Grant Tinsley. Did an awesome talk on body composition assessment and lack of standardization can wreak havoc. So you've probably heard me drone on a little bit in the past about the use of uh, DEXA for body comp and how a lot of you know studies that I've even peer-reviewed 
haven't really standardized the protocol before having athletes to do a DEXA or uh, between tests. So just for some background, so DEXA is dual X-ray absorptivity. It was initially designed for body composition, not necessarily, but for bone mineral density. So most of the time you hear it now, at least in the sports world, is talking about body comp. Uh, the original machines were more designed for bone mineral density and have been adapted to body composition. Uh, Dr. Jordan Moon gave a great talk many years ago at the ISSN uh, that went into all the details of the pros and cons of this. But DEXA, for the most part, is considered kind of a, I'm putting my air quotes here, gold standard for body composition. Reason for this is it does appear to be quite accurate. Now, again, when we say quite accurate, that does not mean if you are a legit 16.1%, that when you get in a DEXA, it's going to automatically read 16.1%. Uh, there is some variability even when you are standardize everything the best that you can just by the nature of the measurement. Uh, there is probably even more error comparing one DEXA to the next. I actually tried to find literature on that, and I can't really find much at all. So if you had a DEXA scan a year ago on a different model from a different location, and you have one a year later, there may be a fair amount of variability between that because it's not only potentially different standardization, and even if you did standardize what you did beforehand, it's a different machine, it's different software, potentially different operators, though that's probably not as big of an issue. So don't really freak out if that is you and you see these massive differences. Uh, try to have a follow-up measurement with the same uh, machine, if at all possible. If not, uh, look at other metrics such as change in body weight, pictures, performance, etc. Uh, so Grant had some really great data that they did a new study looking at a four-component body measure. Uh, so this is trying to take the best subcomponents of looking at body comp and put them together in a comprehensive model, in which they have published data showing that it is quite good. And when they were looking at this, they wanted to kind of sort of compare the standardization before or between uh, measures make a difference. So you can imagine if you have a pre and a post condition, you could compare standardized to standardized. You could have your pre-assessment be not standardized, but your post standardized, or you could flip-flop that, or you could just be completely unstandardized across the board. Now, you may be wondering, like, why you would not do some type of standardization. Um, the reason is it's just convenience. So if you are trying to DEXA, let's say, a whole college football team, it's going to be harder and a lot more time and effort and staff, etc., to have everything be standardized, especially if you're just trying to get into the ballpark. So normally with standardization, we're looking at uh, macronutrients, um, because you have an association between body fat and lean body mass, there's a bunch of different words that are kind of thrown around 
Uh, muscle mass is not necessarily the same as lean body mass, but I will confess that I have kind of used those similarly. And we also have probably more accurately what's called fat-free mass. So most of the time, if you do a, what's called a two-compartment model, you have your fat mass and then your fat-free mass. So your fat-free mass is literally everything that is not fat. So you can imagine if you have different amounts of carbohydrates, you're going to have different amounts of muscle glycogen, and that can kind of skew some of your readings. Uh, fluid intake may uh, affect some of it. If you drink a, let's say, a bunch of water that is body weight, but it's not necessarily fat mass, so that would count towards, uh, in general, fat-free mass, but it's not really fat-free mass. It's a temporary thing. So that's why standardization is needed. Um, what they did was they used uh, also compared uh, different measurements across different systems. They used an in-body. They used DEXA. They used um, BODPOD also. So if we take all of this together, I'll just give you some of the high points here. If they did not standardize the post, they saw an increase of about 1.4 kg of fat-free mass. Now the tricky part here is comparing is this real versus not. But if we compare that to the unstandardized pre and post, uh, they saw about a four kilogram uh, difference. So there is some differences. Do you standardize or do you not standardize? The big grand uh, takeaway, though, was standardization did not have nearly as big effect as what the researchers thought that it would. Um, I can't remember. I didn't have a note here on the exact stats of what the difference was. Again, they will publish all of this data. Um, but that was kind of surprising to me. I know I've been probably maybe unfairly in retrospect critical of DEXA. Um, so we have some new data to show that maybe it's not as critical to be uh, standardized as we thought. Now, again, if you are an individual and you are looking at small changes, right, because even adding lean body mass or fat-free mass, that's a very long-term process. And if you are plus or minus one or two pounds, to you as an individual, that's kind of a big deal. So I do think as an individual, standardization is still the best way to go. Do the same macronutrients the day before. Do not train the day before. And then ideally have the measurement done in the morning. And they'll do what's called a dry fast overnight. So once you go to bed, do not consume any fluids until after you've had the DEXA scan. In a perfect world, it would be the same scanner, same time, same software, same location. So you're trying to minimize as many differences there as you can. However, if you're in charge of, let's say, the college football team, and you have a choice between uh, BODPOD or maybe a cheaper form of BIA or DEXA, DEXA is probably going to be your best bet and does not appear to be as affected by unstandardization as we thought. What was also cool, and I hope they uh, uh, published a little bit more data on this too, is that the group that they took was a group of 19 uh, subjects. And for six weeks, they trained three days per week. And they actually put them on a hypercaloric uh, diet. 
with the goal of gaining one pound per week. And they averaged around 3,800 kilocalories per day. So this would be, I think, an, an interesting study to look at just what were some of the changes that they saw because of those parameters using their four-component model, uh, both pre and post. Again, it was a relatively short period. It was six weeks. Um, but I think that data, once it comes out, uh, will be super interesting. So there's some uh, things you can do for body comp and good practice for DEXA. Another interesting one was uh, by Brandon Roberts. Effects of NSAIDs on muscle and bone uh, from cell to soldiers. Uh, so he was looking at this as uh, part of uh, some army research. Again, he was at the dinner on Friday night, so I got to talk to him a fair amount. I got to sit next to him. A really great guy, super interesting study. Uh, when they were looking at the use of NSAIDs, so common NSAIDs are going to be like uh, Advil, uh, Naproxen. Uh, these have an analgesic, so a pain-killing effect. And there's some interesting data that they may change uh, rates of muscle hypertrophy. Um, the data is relatively, I'd say, kind of split. In animal studies, it's pretty conclusive, but uh, we're not all the same physiology as rats. And some of the data shows that high use of NSAIDs uh, may blunt some of the muscle hypertrophy effects in humans. If you contrast that to the real world, though, you do find some very large mammals who have used high amounts of NSAIDs, and it doesn't really appear anecdotally to affect them. If you look also at older populations, uh, you can look up some of Dr. Trappi's work. Uh, they've published showing that NSAIDs in an older population may actually be mildly anabolic, meaning they might be helpful. Uh, the theories on this is potentially differences in inflammation in younger people versus older people. Uh, but Brandon Roberts was citing some internal data they had in terms of prescriptions for use of NSAIDs in the military. The active army populations that they looked at was around 82% compared to only about 12% in the general population. So they have a high amount of use. As you know, NSAIDs tend to block some of the COX enzymes. These are cyclooxygenase enzymes, especially the form 1 and 2. Um, there are other forms of these drugs that can more selectively block either the COX-1 or the COX-2. So they were looking to see, was there any difference between those on uh, possibly rates of healing? So in general, what they found was that standard NSAIDs, at least on some of the preliminary data, cell culture, uh, did not show huge different uh, effects. Again, they're doing a much more acute uh, human subject study that will be coming out this fall. So they may have more information on that. They did find, however, that a particular form at high doses um, was more toxic to muscle cells. And I believe that was uh, one that blocks the COX-1 enzyme specifically. Again, that's a drug that's not nearly as common. And if I remember correctly, it was an in vitro study. Uh, 
Yes, it was in a cell culture. And it was pretty high dose, but it was something that was still high enough you could see in humans. So more data to come out on that. I think the future will be looking at specifically COX-1 versus COX-2 drugs is one potentially more toxic to muscle than another. As a takeaway, he mentioned that there is some interesting data on tart cherry juice that may help soreness and inflammation and does not appear to affect uh, changes in muscle hypertrophy. Um, so as a short primer, remember that actually having some uh, increased what's called ROS, reactive oxygen species, a little bit of local inflammation appears to be needed for the remodeling effects for hypertrophy and maybe even strength. So we don't want to blunt those effects completely. How much of an effect do we need is still kind of up for debate. So more interesting stuff coming out on that. Uh, Dr. Katie Hirsch did a great talk on high intensity interval training and essential amino acid supplementation. So for this one, they used high intensity interval training. They did 10 rounds for one minute at a 90% of their max. I believe they used a bike for this. And they've presented earlier data showing that high intensity interval training can actually add lean body mass in undertrained individuals. Uh, Dr. Martin Gabalia has published a lot of data on that. Again, that is in untrained individuals. Uh, they talked about Dr. Stu Phillips has shown that muscle protein synthesis and resistance exercise um, using HIT uh, that increases it for about 24 to 48 hours post. I don't remember if that was in untrained individuals or not. So if you do high intensity interval training, that is much closer to strength training than kind of standard cardiovascular aerobic training. So they looked at a study that was uh, 66 people, average age 36 years old. Uh, they were a little bit more on the sedentary, overweight uh, status. And they were investigating high-intensity interval training and essential amino acids. They did not see any RMR changes in terms of resting metabolic rate. They did see an increase in the high-intensity interval training in VO2 max. right? So the volume of oxygen you can run through your system. And that's supported by other data uh, showing that in untrained people, high-intensity intervals do help with that. They did show a drop in RER. So this is a way on a metabolic heart that you can measure how much fat versus carbohydrates somebody is using. So if you see a lower RER, so respiratory exchange ratio, it's looking at the ratio between your oxygen and carbon dioxide. If that number is lower, usually closer to 0.7, that shows that your body is using more fat at rest. And that's what they saw here. They saw a drop in RER, which indicates at rest, your body is using more fat. Uh, however, in terms of body comp, they did not see any change in body fat. Again, I don't believe that they did anything with calories per se, though. Uh, no changes in fat-free mass. Uh, they did do DEXA of uh, whole body, and they did see a little bit of change in the thigh in terms of lean body mass increase. Again, I believe they used biking or cycling with this. Uh, yep, they did. Um, so you would expect that maybe lower body may see an increase in lean body mass, but overall, 
right, we would not expect to see much change in the arms. Uh, this was shown by an increase in the vastus muscle cross-sectional area at the end of eight weeks. They did see whole body uh, turnover rate of proteins were better with essential amino acids, uh, which they said was better muscle quality. Uh, what exactly is muscle quality is a little bit debatable in uh, the literature. And what was interesting about the intervention they did is they had the very last round of 10 they did to exhaustion. So they could look to see was there any type of performance um, changes too. Uh, the dose of essential amino acid was twice per day at 3.6 grams. This was given 30 minutes pre and 30 minutes post. And this was done for a total of eight weeks. And if I'm checking my notes here to see if I have anything else on that study of what else they found. Yeah, so if I remember correctly, there wasn't a huge difference between uh, the groups on that. Um, but again, I would have to go back and double check. So yeah, so the changes in RMR, no changes, increase in VO2 max, the drop in RER, and no change in body fat. Uh, was both for the group that just did the high-intensity interval work and the group that high-intensity interval training with essential amino acids. So you could argue that <clears throat> the inclusion of essential amino acids here did not have any effect. Again, the dosing on that is relatively low, so I would be kind of surprised if it did show an effect. Um, you could argue maybe bumping up the dose would be beneficial, um, but it does kind of match my bias that the biggest thing is training quality. If you get a high enough quality stimulus, especially in untrained people, you're probably going to see some benefit. Now, again, that doesn't mean nutrition can't be beneficial, um, but you're probably going to need to see changes in calories and potentially overall protein. The reason for using essential amino acids here is that they're trying to make something that's an intervention you can do that's reasonable for people who are also untrained. So if they did see that it moved the needle a lot, you could easily have someone consume essential amino acids <clears throat> pre and post training. They don't really upset your stomach. There's not a lot of volume. You can get by with putting them in a very small amount of fluid. So if it was positive, that would be pretty cool and something that may, again, move the needle quite a bit for people who are not necessarily trained and are still working on those habits. Easier you can make an intervention for people to do, more likely they are going to do it. I hope you enjoyed this short snippet of the latest from the International Society of Sports Nutrition here on Iron Radio. Uh, big thanks to Dr. Lonnie Lowry and all the students for the great presentations they did being hardcore and driving all the way down to the conference and all the way back. Um, if you want to listen to even more notes and a complete rundown, uh, this was an excerpt from my podcast, which is just the Flex Diet Podcast. You can find it on iTunes. Thank you so much. We will talk to you all here on Iron Radio next week.
Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.